everyone, and welcome to Closed, the New York City real estate podcast. I'm David Friedman, and I'm here with Cooper Knowlton from Bergstein, Flynn and Knowlton, a New York real estate law firm. And today we're excited to speak with Harvard professor Richard Pizer. Hi, professor. Hello. Professor Pizer is the Michael D. Spear Professor of Real Estate Development at Harvard's Graduate School of Design and quite literally wrote the textbook for professional real estate development. His most recent academic offerings include the Urban Land Institute's Guide to the Business of Professional Real Estate Development and the Routledge Companion to Real Estate Development. Did I pronounce that correctly? Is it Routledge? Uh, yeah, Routledge. Great. Um, you know, real estate development shapes the way people live and work, plays a crucial role in determining our built environment and lived experience. You know, Professor, thank you very much for joining us today. I'm delighted to be here. You know, well, well, there are surely several aspects. You know, we're curious just more, more globally, what excites you the most about real estate development? You know, is it, <laughs> is it the designing, the planning, the process? You know, where, where do you get most excited? Well, as a developer, it is uh, in the design stage uh, because design really is the reflection of everything that happens uh, in the creation of a new building or renovating an old one. Um, it's your reflection of the market, uh, your how you address uh, all the shareholder, I mean, how you address the concerns of the neighborhood and other stakeholders, um, how you address uh, the uh, constraints and concerns of the NIMBYs in the neighborhood and the political approval process. And your success usually depends on how well your design uh, meets the market. Having said that, I am not a designer. And while I, uh, I teach finance and real estate development within a design school, uh, my architect colleagues uh, do not like when I uh, share my design opinions. Well, I mean, that, that is funny. I mean, even even as you talk about design and, you know, considerations of the neighborhood, you know, forgive me, but it's it's been a while since I have read up on Jane Jacobs or Le Corbusier or anything of the sort. You know, do you have certain role models in the industry, certain planners, plot leaders? Yes. Uh, my role models among the great developers, uh, well, Jim Rouse, who uh, developed uh, Columbia Newtown and uh, uh, really uh, as a moral force in the industry. Um, uh, Gerald Hines gave me my first job and uh, has been a lifelong mentor. And it was uh, a, a very sad loss for the industry when he passed away uh, a year ago. Um, there are some uh, current people I admire greatly, like Tom Bizzuto, uh in uh, Washington, D.C., who develops apartments. I think Ron Terwilliger, who got a start with Trammell Crow uh, and built their national apartment platform uh, and has been chair of uh, Habitat for Humanity and really has given back to the industry in a huge way. Uh, you know, developers are in a position <laughs> to uh, make a huge contribution or to uh, do some awful things. I will say that uh, uh, Donald Trump is sort of my anti-representative uh, um, uh, of the development industry. And, and that's okay. We're in New York. <laughs> you 
yeah. a, a quick story on that. Back in 97, we had a, a national meeting of ULI in New York, and it was suggested that he be one of the keynote speakers. In fact, his marketing firm had reached out and asked if he could speak. And uh, I was among the younger members at the time of the program committee, and we sort of rose up uh, as a unified force to say that he was uh, a terrible representative of the industry and not someone we wanted to feature. It's okay. And then he said that he actually turned you guys down. <laughs> I'm sure he would have. Yeah. It, it sounds like, like developers in particular are, are some of your biggest role models. And you mentioned, I think you called it, was it a moral developer or a moral, what you said something like a moral well, I mentioned Jim Rouse, who uh, also created the Enterprise Foundation, which is one of the major uh, uh, funders of uh, low-income housing by uh, purchasing the low-income housing tax credits. Um, and uh, he just made many contributions to uh, uh, the fabric uh, of cities. Uh, I've My main research interest throughout my life has been new towns around the world, and if there's a general theme, it's uh, why do they almost always go bankrupt? And, and sadly, that included Columbia Newtown and Reston and most of the other new towns in the U.S. Well, it's a, it's a, can you elaborate a little bit on what a new town is? Uh, yes, a new town is a uh, complete city. Uh, uh, it, it's not only a suburban residential community, but includes uh, shopping and employment. I I just published a book on new towns with Ann Forsyth, published by the University of Pennsylvania Press, and there we catalog over 500 new towns around the world uh, that have achieved a population of at least 30,000. And you'll find new towns uh, that have uh, populations uh, approaching a million. Uh, my poster child of a successful new town is Bundang in South Korea, and. Uh, there's many reasons for its success, but probably the most important is that it's located directly in the path of growth as freeway and mass transit access. And they did a very good job of designing uh, and preserving the open space and the riverfront to create a, a place that's a very attractive. And, and the, the value of the apartments that people have bought years ago and that are now worth a whole lot more, I think, is a testament to its success. Do, do you find that recently they've they become, I feel like I've heard more and more about new towns in the last few years with some of these, uh, you know, billionaire entrepreneurs talking about building new utopian uh, communities out in the desert and, and all sorts of new or, or the or the ones that are out in the ocean and all sorts of, of new ideas that I feel like I, this is a topic that that's becoming increasingly discussed in the last few years. Well, I really don't buy in. Well, certainly the the new towns have a utopian uh, 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 genesis. Uh, Ebenezer Howard, who uh, wrote Garden Cities for Tomorrow in uh, 1898 and developed two new towns himself, uh, which you can still go see, uh, Llewellyn Garden City uh, outside of London, that to... Uh, the normal person you would just think is a early, early early 20th century suburb, but it incorporates many of the ideas that you find in new towns, which has to do with the preservation of open space and creating an environment where uh, people 
can, in theory, maximize their quality of life. Now, that ideal really uh, is largely, uh, uh, it's not achieved. Now, having said all that, uh, new towns are important right now uh, with climate change because when we look over the next hundred years at uh, the huge uh, number of communities that are going to get flooded out, uh, there really is a need for massive resettlement, not just in the U.S. and around the world. So uh, uh, creating uh, large-scale developments uh, for the relocation of people who are um, going to lose their homes uh, is one of the needs for new towns. Well, it's, um, you know, it's interesting, and I might not remember correctly, but, you know, you, you mentioned like Garden City and Ebenezer Howard and, you know, like, was that was that more of a push to, to I guess, leave urban environments? Is that a little bit of what we're talking about or bringing more of a Garden City into urban environments? Because it seems like you also mentioned this development in South Korea, which sounded like maybe it was right in an urban environment. Well, the original concept uh, by Howard was to uh, combine the best of city and countryside. And uh, Great Britain, along with most many other European countries, had uh, uh, new town uh, programs. Uh, now, in Britain, the new town program, which built uh, uh, 50 new towns, started after World War II. And its main purpose was to provide housing for all the people who lost their homes in World War II and to help with the deconcentration and decongestion of London. And so uh, that program provided uh, a whole series of, of new towns around London and Glasgow and other cities, typically in the 80 to 100,000 ultimate population. Um, which today look like suburbs, but uh, were instrumental in providing housing for uh, a lot of people after World War II and into uh, as late as the year 2000. But today, the main Newtown programs are in China, India, uh, uh, and Africa, where I'm actively engaged right now. And one question I do have about about these international developments, and we talk about these new towns that are a little bit more suburban. You know, when planning and creating a new development, you know, it seems obvious that you have to consider those who are actually going to live there, be there, shop there. But yeah, you know, how much of a global influence is there on these particular new developments? Right, even even for retail purposes, tourism, anything like that, does that really play a factor? for a new development's consideration? Well, when you say global influence, uh, that I'm not exactly sure what you mean by that. Uh, you'll, you'll find uh, historically the same uh, 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 firms like Sasaki and uh, the firm that I worked for the summer I was started my research in London, uh, Llewellyn Davies, Weeks Forrester, Walker and Boer, that had been the main planner for uh, 10 of the new towns around the world, including Canberra, Australia. So when one talks about new towns, uh, you have capital cities like Canberra and uh, Brasilia, which were new towns, uh, but most of the new, and you also have company towns, um, but I'd say most new towns are uh, in greenfield locations, uh, close to metropolitan areas, and are 
intended to provide uh, housing, um, uh, uh, well, ideally for all income groups. Uh, I will say the new towns in Africa tend to be uh, more like gated communities for upper income people, whereas the new town program in Great Britain and also in France were very much targeted to uh, lower middle income people and working class people, uh, many of whom had lost their homes in East London with the bombing. So uh, the, the failure of the United, the United States has not really had an urban strategy or a national urban strategy uh, probably since uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson. And uh, so uh, uh, the U.S. has been getting out of the housing business so the, the U.S. has not had a national housing strategy for a very long time, and uh, what we see in the American landscape is pretty much the result of uh, a combination of just pure market forces and a lot of local government regulation. And uh, that leads to uh, a lot of the problems that we have in cities, uh, but uh, it does if, if you're a developer and know how to play the game uh, it creates opportunities for uh, uh, great wealth For, professor we were, we were speaking with an assemblyman in new york yesterday and he was talking a lot about how um repurposing space is a much greener solution than um you know building new condos new high-rises in new york city right he's he's spending a lot of time thinking about how do we repurpose office space and turn it into residential space because it's it's greener and it's and it's more cost effective for the for the developers is that uh you know is is there a way to create new towns that is it you know i know you you sort of said it, it new towns may have to be a, a solution to climate change but um, are there ways to think about new towns as a as a greener solution as opposed to I'm afraid you're breaking up. We'll, we'll do the editing, but if you could address maybe Cooper's point about instead of building new developments and for a greener space and talk more about, say, redevelopment or repurposing. Yes. Well, I agree a, a thousand percent with the assemblyman. I, Probably one of the biggest uh, climate change hot buttons is what we call embedded carbon. And that's the carbon used to build the buildings. And he's absolutely right that the uh, uh, if you want to reduce the carbon footprint of development, probably the best way is through uh, refurbishing and, and repurposing existing buildings rather than building uh, from ground up. Having said that, as a developer, it's surprising but true that it's often cheaper to build uh, ground up than it is to try to repurpose an old building, and especially converting an office building to residential where you have to put in new plumbing risers, uh, new HVAC, new systems, new windows, insulation, uh, possibly new structural elements. Doing that in, a, in an old building um, uh, can often be more expensive than just tearing it down and starting from scratch. But having said that, I think uh, one of the great challenges over the next hundred years and one of the great opportunities in development is uh, doing exactly what the assemblyman says, which is uh, uh, refurbishing existing buildings. Are you seeing certain projects? You know, especially now having an easier time obtaining financing? 
Well, we've been in an environment uh, really um, since probably 2012 coming out of the great financial crisis uh, where there has been very low mortgage rates and uh, plentiful equity for good projects. So finding financing over the last 10 years has, uh, well, it's gotten increasingly easier as we moved into the late teens. And uh, in the 20s, they're really, uh, at least leading up to COVID and even during COVID, uh, there's a lot more money out there looking for good projects than there are good projects. And uh, one thing that may help us in the current environment of high inflation and rapidly rising interest rates, that uh, when the slowdown comes, and I think the stock market's reflecting the fact that uh, we're expecting a uh, slowdown, uh, it's what the Fed is trying to achieve, uh, that uh, it probably will not, in my view, have the uh, terrible impact on uh, the real estate industry as previous recessions, primarily because we're not, we're really not overbuilt. You know, as, as much as I like to pretend that the stock market doesn't exist at the moment, <laughs> it does, you know, do you, do you hypothesize that, you know, as the market is going down, do you see that as maybe people reposition out of the market into real estate, or do you see it possibly as a hindrance for obtaining finance? Well, it's definitely going to be a hindrance for obtaining financing because uh, the cost of uh, construction financing and permanent financing is going to is going up dramatically right now. Uh, the uh, inflation, I'm sorry, real estate is always viewed as one of the best hedges against inflation. So you're right. When the stock market cra- uh, falls dramatically as it has, uh, uh, real estate is considered one of the uh, preferred alternative classes uh, because uh, uh, if you own real estate, uh, especially hotels or retail, which have been uh, uh, the classes under COVID uh, that have been most hurt, uh, those are the uh, property types where you're able to raise rents uh, the fastest. So uh, I I do expect uh, real estate, which has already been uh, favored over the last few years, to become uh, uh, even more favored. Now, what that means is probably not going to lead to a a sudden huge shift among institutional investors like pension funds putting more money into real estate. But on the other hand, I don't see you're not going to see them withdrawing the money from real estate. It's very interesting. Professor, um, I'm wondering if you can chat a little bit about the lingering effects or or trends that COVID has had on the world of commercial development. Um, Maybe you can also address what you think uh, remote work or or how you might think remote work might impact development in a place like New York City moving forward. Well, that's a great question. Uh, COVID has had uh, dramatic impacts on real estate, but I think that the general thinking among people whose opinions I respect is that it hasn't so much completely changed trends as sped up trends that were already happening. Certainly in the retail side, uh, um, we were already seeing uh, increasing sales over the internet and many uh, traditional malls uh, uh, going out of business. And uh, the closure of all the retail during COVID uh, accelerated that trend. But uh, it's still somewhat surprising that the total amount of retail sales, uh, even at the 
even now after COVID is, is about 21%. So it's not the 40 or 50% that you might imagine. So uh, uh, traditional retail uh, not only is not going away, but I think is uh, right now being uh, rediscovered as a desirable place to invest, partly because uh, uh, unlike apartments and industrial, it's been out of favor. Uh, when it comes to office buildings, uh, I we're seeing a bifurcation among office buildings. Uh, uh, any older office building that is less energy efficient, does not have the common areas that support co-working situations, doesn't have direct access to outdoor patios and fresh air, openable windows. Uh, those buildings are uh, they're hard to lease and you're seeing vacancies that uh, uh, make them uh, uh, problematic. Uh, and this has been especially true among uh, suburban office complexes. Uh, but the flight from the city, which is something that I've documented in a recent article, and the question of whether we're going to see the return to the city, that uh, was what a lot of urban planners were hoping was the new trend out of the last 20 years. My own opinion is that with remote working and uh, and uh, uh, lifestyle issues that uh, uh, COVID has uh, supported, uh, that uh, you're not going to see uh, uh, any near-term uh, return to the city and uptick in the city uh, population uh, that uh, planners were hoping for in the 90s and early 2000s. Now, that does not mean that cities are going to go in the tank. It just means that uh, in the relative uh, uh, growth between cities and suburbs and exurbs, I don't think you're going to see the uh, uh, the return to the city that uh, – uh, we may have uh, before COVID. Uh, again, that does not mean you're going to write off cities because cities are still where you find uh, uh, the most exciting lifestyle. And that's exactly why the high tech firms in Boston, New York, and San Francisco and the other gateway cities are are buying up uh, uh, huge uh, properties uh, in in downtowns and central city locations. And, and personally, I, I, I haven't looked at the data, but I would be surprised if things keep going up in New York the way they have been. Uh, and what you see in some of the most desirable parts of Manhattan, I, I think, is not necessarily what you see out in the boroughs. One exception being Brooklyn, which uh, has become sort of the poster child for uh, uh, where uh, all the millennials want to live. Yep, I was so that's what I was going to highlight. While while New York, while Manhattan might be a certain case, you know, right outside in areas like Brooklyn, you're seeing quite an increase. Um, yes, you know, and I just I just read an article the other day that there's more people moving to New York City now than there were in 2018, um, but a lot of people left during COVID. <laughs> yes, so, so it doesn't make up for all the people that left, but just that the you know, and I guess it makes sense that a lot more would be coming now because there a lot are coming back. Right. So, right. Just well, one of the big questions in real estate is what is the office occupancy going to be uh, when things stabilize? Uh, the last number I looked at in New York, which is a few months out of date was that only about 36% of the offices were occupied uh, 
uh, which of course is still very, very low. Um, that, that, I don't mean to say 36% or the least because that's whatever the leasing was before, but actual occupancy is still very low. I think the general expectation is that it's going to be somewhere when everything is done, that it's going to be 15 to 20% below uh, what it was before. And uh, that's still going to be disastrous for an awful lot of uh, office building owners. Yeah. And that, that's a lot of open offices. Professor, are there any other macro trends right now that you're seeing that are really shaping how people are thinking about commercial development and planning? Um, I know that's a big question, but curious curious to hear your thoughts. Well, there are many trends. Uh, first, just about COVID, you are seeing trends in apartment design that uh, where uh, they're recognizing that uh, people who are working from home uh, want a, a, an office space. And they want a lot more amenities in common areas because they're spending more time in the apartment complexes. And developers like Tom Bizzuto and others uh, who are, uh, that is part of the design trends uh, in apartments. Now, you've asked a much bigger question. What are the macro trends in urban planning? And <laughs> I'd say the, the number one macro trend has to do with uh, dealing with climate change and uh, energy conservation and sustainability. Um, the second trend is the desperate need for more affordable housing, which is not just a U.S. problem. It's a worldwide problem. And uh, the solution to that, ultimately, the only real solution is to build more housing. And uh, that's still very hard. It's costly. The regulatory environment makes it very long and expensive. It gives lawyers uh, lots of things to do. Um, and uh, the uh, nimbyism is rampant across the U.S. and elsewhere in the world that makes it very hard to uh, really uh, uh, densify uh, urban areas, which is what most planners would support. Uh, the other fundamental trend is is uh, making open space and recreation spaces in urban areas uh, more usable, better designed. And in my own experience, uh, if those open spaces don't get designed in from the start, uh, it's next to impossible to go back later and insert them. Uh, Dallas, where I grew up, is a case in point where everything was privatized uh, uh, the park system, except in some of the older areas like Highland Park, uh, is not very good. And uh, so to go back into these vast areas of the suburbs uh, that are just uniform, low-density development and try to add in the open spaces that make it uh, more livable and attractive, uh, that's very difficult after the fact. One of the advantages of places like Los Angeles is that you have a lot of areas that are unbuildable in the hills and uh, uh, the canyons. And because of that, uh, you have uh, air open spaces that have been preserved uh, simply because they couldn't be developed. And, and now, you've got such... doesn't have that problem. You can build anywhere, and they did. Right. No, and, you, and you have such public utilities in L.A. It's such as the beach and the ocean, right, that, that anyone yes. can go and enjoy. Yes, yeah, no, it's tough. All right. Well, I think that's a good place to stop. I want to be respectful of your time. Um, thank you so much for joining us. This was a, an incredibly interesting conversation. I uh, really enjoyed it. 
Um, I know David did as well, and, and hopefully we'll get the opportunity to chat with you again again at some point in the future. Thanks so much. Truly appreciate it, and thank you very, very much. Well, thank you for your interests, and I, I assume you'll send me the link. Uh, so uh, Absolutely. I'll be able to see how incoherent I was. No, it's perfect. <laughs> all right. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. For more on all things real estate and the law, subscribe to this and our other podcasts. Follow Bergstein, Flynn, and Knowlton on social media. Subscribe to our newsletter and go to bfklawoffice.com. That's bfklawoffice.com to learn more.